Hi friends, welcome to the Kindness Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Riggs, and today we have a special episode for you of a COVID-19 vaccine education webinar that was hosted by Special Olympics Kentucky. They had friend of the podcast, oh, I've never been able to say that, friend of the podcast, Priya Chandon, Dr. Priya Chandon, who we had um, with us in December with her brother Encore. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, we talk about COVID-19 in those episodes as well. Um, I got off track, but this one's about the vaccine. Okay, so we have Dr. Priya Chandon and Dr. Corey Harris from Norton Children's Hospital. In this session, they talk all things vaccine. Self-advocates and parents submitted questions beforehand, and um, Dr. Priya and Dr. Corey were able to answer most of them. And even like at the end, they even showed us a list of what they call parking lot questions that they are collecting for the next session. So I think that we're going to be, you know, having more and more of these, which are so wonderful, which is just so wonderful. I had so many of my own questions answered from this webinar today and, and, um, I'm just so grateful to Special Olympics Kentucky, Dr. Priya Chandon, and Dr. Corey Harris for agreeing to let us record this and share this with you. As always, we will put any additional information we collect in the show notes. So have fun learning about vaccines. You are listening to the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production, serving locally, sharing globally. busy lives to be with us. Um, we are right on just about a, a year, one year anniversary of, of uh, dealing and living with COVID. Um, and so not too long ago, more recently, we, we got good news that a vaccine was available and even better news, the vaccine is being administered. Um, by all accounts, from what I read and hear, we're doing a pretty good job here in Kentucky. I think our, our doctors uh, will kind of maybe uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, but it's bringing us all a little bit of hope that we're one step closer to uh, seeing an end to uh, the COVID era. You know, we're so far from it, but certainly the vaccine sort of encourages us and, 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 and provides a little bit of hope for us. Um, so what we're gonna do today, and by the way, I should introduce myself. I'm Trish Mazzoni, I'm with Special Olympics Kentucky. I forgot to do that, sorry. Um, again, you're just gonna see, we got more and more people joining. We had well over a hundred uh, registrants for this. so. Uh, my assumption is that we'll just probably for the first 10 minutes or so be admitting people into the session. Um, so our, our um, course, for, if we'll go to, a, to, the, to the next slide here, we're going to um, keep everybody on mute uh, for the presentation. So as you're coming in, if you're not muted, we're probably going to mute you. Um, and you all had an opportunity uh, when you registered to submit some questions, and you did a great job of that. And, and the reason we wanted to do that, one was to kind of monitor those, uh, eliminate duplicate questions. Uh, it'll, we, we got those questions to our two uh, presenters today ahead of time, giving them sufficient time to you know, kind of get the, the appropriate answers and responses to those questions. Uh, so we thought that would make today's session run a little bit more efficient and smoothly. Um, we will have some time at the end of the presentation uh, for if you've got like additional and questions, follow-up questions, and we're going to ask that you, you utilize the chat box uh, to uh, 
submit any additional questions. And so what I would encourage you to do is, is listen to the, the presentation. Uh, my guess is that any questions you have are likely going to be answered, uh, but certainly if they're not, utilize the chat box uh, to get those questions submitted and we'll make sure that uh, our, our presenters get, a, get those. And also to let you know too that um, we will be recording this session um, and certainly for all registered, uh, those that registered, you'll get uh, an email with the link to the recording and it can be shared as well. So um, with that being said, um, we'll want to get started here. If you'll go to our next slide. I got Kelly here doing all kinds of multitasking here. Uh, we're super excited to, to have our, our presenters here today. Um, you can see that probably them on the screen. Dr. Priya Chandon. Uh, all of those credentials uh, you can see there on the screen, uh, along with Dr. Corey Harris and all of her credentials. And uh, very proud and happy to say that um, uh, both of these uh, individuals are uh, serve on as board members for Special Olympics Kentucky. So we're, we're privileged and honored to have them as a part of our team. Um, having some conversations with Priya, um, uh, probably a couple weeks ago, we realized that with the vaccine out and it being administered, it just brings about a lot of questions. And so many of us, uh, whatever your source of uh, finding answers, whether you watch the daily news, whether you read publications, or by golly, if you go to social media, which is where a lot of people seem to go for answers, um, we just came to the conclusion that there's a, lo a lot of misinformation perhaps, and then just some confusing information. So we thought it would be a great idea, and I appreciate Corey and uh, Priya for for wanting to do this to, to sort of answer questions that a lot of us have and provide some clarity um, uh, for some of the questions that we might have. So without further ado, I'm gonna uh, turn this over to uh, Dr. Priya Chen and Dr. Corey Harris for our presentation. All right, can everybody hear me okay? Give me some thumbs up, thank you, thank you. Um, nice to see familiar faces here. Um, and uh, I'm gonna go through um, some of the questions. I think somebody might not be on. Talking and I don't hear her. Okay. Someone's, I think we might need to mute. Uh, we're good? All right. Um, so thank you, uh, Trish, for the introduction. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you to all of our self-advocates. So for everybody on here today that is a Special Olympics athlete um, or a Down Syndrome Louisville member or um, because this session came about largely because of you guys. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, Facebook messages and texts and emails, um, you know, we all exchanged. And so we really felt like this was something that the community needed. So Dr. Harris and I are really excited to be able to talk to you guys today. And we really thank Special Olympics Kentucky um, for their logistics, managing the Zoom and the register and getting us those questions. Um, and Down Syndrome Louisville as well for their support and sending this out to their members. Um, and you know, for the two organizations kind of coming together and for us um, to be able to have this opportunity. So let's get started. Just as a general, um, you know, sort of comment, why might somebody get a vaccine? Um, the reason you here is to protect myself and my family to help stop the spread of a disease, in this case, COVID-19 in the community as well as to set an example for others. Um, some common questions we will address. So we really wanted this session um, to be interactive and there was so much interest that the best way to handle that logistically was for you guys to submit questions when you registered. Um, and so we have taken those questions, we've kind of grouped them. You'll see specific questions that we highlight 
Um, if you, we don't get to your question, we have sort of a process for that too. So we're gonna talk through all of that, but just know that, you know, we're here, we are happy to answer questions and, you know, we kind of foresee this as being the first, um, but we're happy to do this again. So I'm gonna let Dr. Harris start um, with some, some myth busters, some myths versus facts here. Yeah, as, as Trish mentioned in our introduction, um, it can be really confusing looking online, trying to figure out what are facts um, and what aren't when you try and even Google COVID-19 vaccine. Um, this first slide talks about some um, just common misperceptions um, for starters, um, COVID-19 vaccines cannot give you COVID-19 infection. Uh, people who have already gotten sick with COVID-19 still benefit from getting vaccinated. Getting vaccinated can help prevent getting sick with COVID-19. And COVID-19 vaccines will not cause you to test positive on a COVID-19 test. We, we get into um, talking about the why behind a lot of these facts later in our presentation. Scientists test vaccines during clinical trials to make sure they're safe. Um, the FDA used the same strict standards on the COVID-19 vaccine that they do on any other vaccine. Um, typically, um, these studies start with phase one with a small number of healthy volunteers. They move to phase two, where you have, have several hundred volunteers. Phase three, thousands of volunteers. and that often includes people with medical conditions, um, people that you might be concerned are more high risk um, for side effects of the vaccination. The COVID-19 vaccine involved um, clinical trials with over 40,000 people. Um, in general, the FDA requires trials with 3,000 people. So even though the approval process for the COVID-19 vaccine went more quickly than it does for other vaccinations, all of the steps um, were, were taken, all the appropriate steps were taken, and it was approved by multiple institutions. Yeah, so kind of piggybacking off of what Dr. Harris said, um, you know, we didn't go into the real in-depth in terms of the study itself. Um, I do have the studies in terms of for each of the vaccines, you know, the official paper that came out, um, and we can cover those, you know, in depth later if you guys would like, but we wanted to start with just some general things. Another general part of the procedure here was the monitoring. So for these vaccines, there's two independent advisory committees that reviewed the results. And so they were not associated with any of the vaccine manufacturers. Um, safety monitoring is going to continue for years. Um, for the Pfizer vaccine, um, which is the one I've sort of read the most in depth because the literature has been around the longest, um, the plan is to um, monitor people for um, how they respond for up to two years. Now, what's interesting, that being said, is um, if at some point the vaccine um, is approved by regulators and it's recommended by public health authorities, which is kind of where we are now, it would be considered unethical to keep people from getting the vaccine and to continue to monitor those with the placebo, so the, the, the shot that was not actually the vaccine. So what you're going to see is there will be continuing to monitor, but they might not continue to keep the people who got the placebo, so the just the shot that wasn't with the vaccine, um, to not get the vaccine because ethically, if it's if it's effective, 
then you can't withhold an effective treatment from people. So just as sort of a caveat there, but all of that is to say that monitoring is going to continue for quite some time. And looking at how effective COVID-19 vaccines are, um, there are two companies that are currently approved for vaccination use under the Emergency Use, Emergency use Act. Um, both have a 95% protection rate from having infection um, and really universal protection rate from having severe infection. Um, there are two other companies, Johnson & Johnson and Novavax that are currently in clinical trials. The thought is that they're, they will be able to add to the vaccination pool probably late spring, summer. Um, both of these vaccinations had simi similar efficacy regardless of rate, race, ethnicity, age. It was tested in young adults and up. Um, and people with medical conditions. I think that, you know, we can give you the facts of the, you know, 94, 95% um, success rate. Um, but as physicians, we really are excited about these vaccines. Um, these success rates make them among the best vaccines ever created with effectiveness rates similar to chickenpox, measles, which we really don't see. Um, there are a, a few cases of patients who have contracted COVID-19 um, following vaccination. Often that was between the first and the second vaccination, so they probably didn't have their full immunity. But they only in very, very rare cases was that infection severe. So turning COVID-19 mild disease into a mild disease to us is a huge success. Um, it's preliminary hope of the 30,000 people who re received the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine in the research trials, only one got severe COVID-19 vaccine, uh, a severe COVID-19 disease following the vaccine, meaning later after an exposure. And that included elderly people, immune compromised people. It um, It's a success. A little bit of a description about what the vaccine actually is. Um, mRNA technology is new to vaccine production, but has been used for more than 10 years in cancer treatment. Um, so it's not new to the medical field. Um, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines give instructions to our cells to make a harmless piece that looks like the spike protein that you see in all these pictures. The spike protein is found on the surface of the COVID-19 virus. Our bodies see this protein as foreign. Um, they know it shouldn't be there. So our bodies build antibodies that will remember how to fight the virus that causes COVID-19 if we're infected in the future. And just to add, we're, we're gonna explain this again in another way. So we tried to put things in here explained in a couple ways. So this is the first time you're gonna see, um, you know, this mRNA vaccine, but we're gonna talk about it um, again in a little bit. Um, what we want to talk to you about, talk to you about a little, a little bit about now, um, is our next question um, about about children. And so, Dr. Harris um, can tell you a little bit about her role um, at Home of the Innocents here in Louisville. Um, I know it was sort of on the intro side, but Dr. Harris, if you want to talk about sort of your expertise, what you do at Home of the Innocents, um, and then kind of cover um, a little bit about children, um, since you're since you're the pediatrician here. Yeah, sure. Um... You know, there are a lot of questions about when will kids get it and concerns that it could be, you know, that they're 
pro probably one of the furthest groups down the line. Um, currently, the Pfizer vaccine is approved for age 16 and up. And the, the Moderna vaccine is approved for age 18 and up. Um, yeah. Both companies' um, studies on kids age 12 and up are in the works. Um, kids, younger kids, um, are probably going to be much, quite a bit further down the line in terms of clinical studies and receiving the vaccine. Um, in addition, Johnson & Johnson and Novavax clinical trials are on adults. Um, they're both studying 18, age 18 and up. Um, as a pediatrician, um, I am a hospitalist at Norton Children's Hospital, so I've taken care of a number of um, healthy children um, infected with COVID-19. I also work at the Home of the Innocents as um, one of the medical directors. Um, the Home of the Innocents Convalescent Center is um, an 80-bed long-term care facility for medically complex children. So most of the patients that I take care of on a daily basis have multiple medical conditions, including um, cerebral palsy, tracheostomies. Um, we have some kids with Down syndrome or other um, medical conditions that cause um, developmental delay. We have a number of children on ventilators. Um, we have had four children um, with COVID-19 um, infection in our long-term care facility. And surprisingly, when this pandemic started, we were really, really scared of what would COVID-19 do to our kids um, because they're so fragile. And we have had other outbreaks of different viruses in the past that really caused severe illness in our kids with lots of kids requiring hospitalization. So far, um, we've had four kids with COVID-19. Three have been completely asymptomatic. One had respiratory symptoms. None required hospitalization or significant medical interventions. Um, so I think Overall, looking at children, whether they're healthy or with medical conditions, while it's not impossible that they do develop severe disease from COVID-19, it's, it's less likely. We know that the death rate and morbidity, sorry, morbidity rate in the elderly is, it's very different from children. Um, and that's really why they're on the tail end of um, the vaccination process. Thanks to Dr. Harris for that. Um, so now I just kind of want to um, illustrate some some ground rules into how we handled your questions. So we received over 30 questions um, and they kind of trickled in. So we did our best. Um, you know, we went through, we revised this PowerPoint, I don't know how many times trying to make sure we could capture as much as we could. Um, so just a little bit about how we handled the questions. You're going to see in green font as we go throughout if you see that, that's a question that one of you in the audience has submitted. Um, so take a look, see if it was yours. Um, we, in looking at the questions, we tried to prior prioritize questions from our self-advocates. So our SOKI athletes, our DSL members, um, as well as frequently asked questions. So that's kind of, you know, if you're wondering, well, why wasn't my question addressed? That, those are kind of the things we used to try to triage um, which questions we were gonna get to today. Like I mentioned, we're happy to do this again. So if we don't get to your question, no worries. Um, and then I'm going to introduce the concept of the parking lot. So some of you may have heard this um, in school places, but so the parking lot is to say we are keeping track of questions that maybe we don't get to today, that maybe we don't have answers to right now. 
um, and that we will address again. So if we don't get to it, it's not going away. It's just going to sit in the parking lot. Um, and we are planning to keep track of that and address those, you know, on an ongoing basis. Because, um, like I said, we're happy to kind of do this again. Um, so I just want to get um, to our first question, which Dr. Harris um, is going to go over um, with you guys. Do we know if there have been any cases where someone has contracted the virus after they have taken the vaccine? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, vaccines are 95% effective, so 5% of people won't have antibodies or protection against the virus. Um, the cases of people catching COVID-19 after being vaccinated are most frequently in the first, like after the initial shot between the first two, uh, between the between the two shots. And it's hard to know when they when that person got infected. Could they have been infected and asymptomatic, got the vaccine and then developed their symptoms? Could they have become infected shortly after the vaccine or could they be part of one of those 5% um, that doesn't mount the, the proper immune response? We know that immunity takes a few weeks to build after vaccination. Um, we feel like your, your full immunity is present about a month after your second shot. So it does take time. Um, and we're really still learning. Um, it's only been, the, the clinical trial started summer of 2020, so it's been less than a year since the first person even got the vaccine. So I think we have a lot to learn. And you're gonna see that highlight that we are still learning. Um, it's not a satisfying answer, but you know we wanna make sure to mention to you guys that there's a lot that still is unknown. We've learned a lot um, over the past year, but anytime you know, if the answer is confusing or unclear, Probably it's because we're still learning and we'll try to highlight that um, if that's kind of the reason why the answer may be a little confusing. Um, I'm gonna let Dr. Harris take our uh, our next questions, um, which yeah, kind of, go ahead. Oh, sure. There were a number of questions about um, the duration of the vaccine. You know, what is the effective duration of the vaccine? Will it last for a lifetime? Um, will we need a booster? Um, is it a one and done shot or will we need to get it every year like the flu shot? Um, you know, most of these vaccines, I think Johnson & Johnson is developing one that's a single shot, um, but most of them are two doses, three to four weeks apart. Um, protection typically is maxed um, a couple of weeks after the second dose up to a month. Um, we're still learning. Um, again, trials just started in summer of 2020 researchers are studying people's antibodies reaction, antibody reaction to the vaccine. Um, so the clinical trials will continue for years watching antibody levels in people, um, when they start to wax and wane, um, when people start to have breakthrough infection, um, meaning they may be losing their immunity. Um, right now, we don't know, will we need a booster, you know, every number of years or will we need um, a COVID-19 vaccine every year? Uh, time will tell. So those of you who kind of worked with me, you know, I like pictures. Um, so we put these in here. Uh, you'll be able to kind of reference them, but it puts into pictures for you kind of like when you get the vaccine and then when you get that second shot and then when are you fully protected? So this is for Pfizer. And this is for Moderna. Like I said, we'll make sure to share these as resources. Um, but you can use these. I use these, you know, when I got my vaccine to say, okay, so when um, does full protection, when is full protection achieved? 
Um, so now moving into kind of the next set of questions we got, we got a lot of questions from you guys um, about if I have X, if I have a particular medical condition, should I get the vaccine? Um, so you can see some of the examples here. Um, so, you know, like if I'm medically fragile, if I have Down syndrome, if I have autism, um, if I have lymphedema, if I have obesity, um, and we wanted to spend some time on these sorts of questions. So while we're not really able in a format like this to provide sort of one-on-one -on -one, um, medical counseling, we do have some general things that we thought might be helpful for you guys who have these types of questions. So understand that when it comes to a vaccine, a reason not get the vaccine is called a contraindication. Um, and so right now the guidance is that the vaccine can be given to anybody who doesn't have a contraindication. So what are the contraindications? What are those reasons um, that someone should not get the COVID vaccines? And right now those contraindications are related to allergic reactions to a previous dose of the vaccine or to vaccine components. So if you're somebody who had a reaction, um, this is why when you get the vaccine, monitor you. Um, I forget if it's 10 or 15 minutes, but you essentially get the get the shot and you sit there and they watch you <laughs> um, just to make sure that because if you're going to have a very serious reaction, it's going to happen quick. Um, so they have that waiting period there. Um, so for folks that have had the vaccine, have had an allergic reaction, they would require evaluation by an allergist immunologist to say, whether they can get the vaccine safely and in what setting. So do they need more observation, more than that 10 to 15 minutes? Do they need to do it um, in a place where, you know, advanced level of care support is available versus some of the mass, you know, vaccination um, different settings that we have? So the answer, the short answer to all of this is none of the medical conditions um, are sort of reasons not to get the vaccine. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Harris speak a little bit about how really, if you think about it, if you have particular medication, particular medical conditions like these listed, um, you, it really sort of relates to your risk of getting severe disease from COVID. So it almost makes the case in that thinking about risk and benefit, it's a greater benefit to you to get the vaccine um, if you have some underlying health conditions um, that you know might increase your risk for having severe disease from COVID. So I'm gonna let Dr. Harris um, speak to that. Yes, I, I, um, one of the questions that came up is if you're you know, medically complex or medically fragile or have multiple medical conditions, um, sh should I be more scared to get the vaccine, more at risk for side effects? Um, it, like Dr. Chandran was talking about, you are also at, you are at risk, high risk or higher risk for getting severe disease from COVID-19. Um, and I do think in, unless you're allergic to the vaccination, in pretty much all cases, your risk of COVID-19 is much greater than your risk of vaccine. Um, I wanted to share my experience with young adults at Home of the Innocents. Um, our residents have been vaccinated for COVID-19 over the past month, um, they received the Pfizer vaccine. Um, we have 32 residents who are age 16 and up and all of the families um, consented to vaccination. We have had basically no serious adverse events or side effects and a couple of small side effects that we know what, that we expect. Um, we had one resident that just got a little 
redness to her arm. And um, we had one resident that got not even a real fever, like 100.4, a small fever. Um, but we're thankful that all of the parents, um, after we talked through things through with them, were um, open to giving their children the vaccine. Um, and I hope it might reassure some of you that might have medical conditions that we've we've seen it, at least in my firsthand experience with my patients, um, really no severe side effects. Yeah, and we hope, you know, for all the um, self-advocates who are worried about it, given their health conditions um, or anyone else in the community, we hope that that experience gives you some comfort um, in the sense that everybody who submitted questions today um, are folks that live in the community. So compared to the residents at Home of the Innocents, folks who live at Home of the Innocents because they are so medically complex, um, you know, we, they're even more medically fragile and they all did receive the vaccine and they did well with it. So we hope that that experience provides, you know, some comfort. Obviously, um, it can be anxiety inducing to wonder, you know, is this going to go poorly for me? Um, but so that's uh, what we wanted to share with you guys about that. Um, and the next point we want to talk about is, can the vaccine give me COVID? And so the short answer here is no. <laughs> um, the vaccine cannot give you COVID. I'm going to give you um, an explanation as to why that is. Now, you can expect to have some short-term discomfort. Um, so fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, fever, pain at the injection site. Um, Dr. Harris is going to show you the breakdown of specifically what percentage of people get those, um, get those side effects. Um, these side effects last for about one to three days. Um, and typically what we've seen is that the side effects are more uh, pronounced after the second dose. But keep in mind, the side effects mean that your body is doing its job. It's making antibodies, it's responding. So it's a good thing, even though it's uncomfortable. Um, the side effects are normal, they're common and they're expected. So I wanna give you guys sort of a picture. This goes back to that picture that Dr. Harris shared with the mRNA vaccines. You've probably been hearing that because the two that are approved here in the US are mRNA vaccines. So what does that mean? Um, it's actually pretty cool. So the way it works is you, the vaccine, so in that shot, there's kind of a recipe. Um, there's instructions to your body cells on how to make this red spiky protein here. Um, and so when you get the vaccine, your cells get the instructions for doing that. They can make that protein, this red spiky thing. And then your body says, wait a minute, that's not us. Like that's not, that's not, that didn't come from us. What is that doing here? And it responds to it. So that's when you get that immune response from the vaccine, the, the fever, the muscle pains, that's your body saying, hey, you don't belong here. Um, what then happens is your body also will remember that for the future. So if you see this red spiky thing again from the coronavirus, your body will say, you don't belong here, and it will um, sort of attack it. And so that's why you're having those symptoms. But the reason why this particular vaccine cannot actually give you COVID-19 is because we only gave your body the recipe for the tiny little red protein. Um, and so we didn't give it the, re the recipe for the whole virus. You didn't get the recipe for the gray, for the orange. Um, and so for that reason, getting the vaccine cannot give you COVID. Your body's only getting exposed to just this one protein. Um, that also relates to questions, um, which we're, we've kind of put in the parking lot, but I'll briefly mention it. You might be hearing about kind of the different strains that are going around. And, you know, does that mean that the vaccine won't work anymore? 
and it's all going to relate to the, the strains and how they differ in this little red spiky protein. If the red spiky protein is still so pretty similar, your body's still going to recognize it and it's still going to fight it off. And that's what we've been seeing. But we're actively monitoring the different strains, the different mutations that the virus can go through. Um, because, yeah, it is true that, you know, it's going, we got the recipe for a part of the virus. That's good because that means it can't give us the virus. But that means that if that part changes, our body may not recognize it. Um, so that's kind of the, the short of it all there. But I like to think about it as sort of recipes. You got the recipe for the red spiky. You got the recipe for one part of the meal, but you didn't get it for the entire sort of Thanksgiving spread. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. I'm going to let Dr. Harris talk a little bit more about kind of the side effects that we see. Um, and then we will also briefly talk about what it was like for us. This is a list of most common side effects based on data from the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. Um, four to 16% of people experienced a fever, which is typically a temperature of 100.5 or more. Um, people felt fatigued or a little tired immediately following the vaccine, most typically in the first three days. Some people had a headache. Some people had localized muscular pain um, at the site of the injection or more um, all over their body. Um, there was not a specific group of people that was more likely to react to the vaccination. Um, there were a couple questions about people with um, medical conditions um, such as Down syndrome or diabetes or asthma. Are they more likely to have trouble um, with side effects with the vaccine? And the answer is no. Um, side effects were in the clinical studies more common after the second dose of the vaccine. Um, side effects are not COVID um, infection. Uh, just as Dr. Chandran told you, um, you you're not, um, your body doesn't have a COVID uh, virus inside of it when you get the vaccine. Um, what you're feeling, if you feel any of these side effects, are your body reacting to that um, small spiky protein and making antibodies to prepare you in case you're ever exposed to the virus in the future. Um, there was a question, um, will I get sick after my second shot? Um, we know that side effects are more common following the second vaccine, but most people don't have side effects after the vaccinations. You can see the numbers um, about, kind of if you look at the numbers following the most common side effects, while many people do experience something, more people don't. Um, and that's been my personal experience um, with friends and um, patients who have received the vaccine. Um, there was a question about should you pre-medicate or take Tylenol or ibuprofen before you get the vaccine, just so you might stave off any potential side effects. And there's not a lot of great data or studies on that. Um, I did have an infectious disease physician who talked with my hospitalist group before we all got the vaccine and they encouraged us to not take Tylenol or ibuprofen before the vaccine um, because they said it's it could potentially, you want that reaction to the vaccine. You want your body to mount the inflammatory reaction um, to, so you can build the best immunity possible. And theoretically, there's a possibility that if you take those medicines that blunt the fever or blunt your reaction that you might not mount as good of an of a reaction against the vaccine. Now, 
that has been studied in young children because we give Tylenol and ibuprofen all the time after like your MMR vaccine or different vaccines that we know causes fever um, or pain and giving those medications following a vaccine to control your side effects is, is fine. Yeah, so um, again, just for those questions, so will you get sick after your second shot? Uh, we do see the side effects more after the second shot. I will say for me, I reacted stronger to the first one. So, you know, all bets are off. Um, Pre-medicate with Tylenol, like Dr. Harris said, do not pre-medicate, don't take it before the shot. But if you start to feel very uncomfortable after the shot, you can take Tylenol to kind of help with that. I will describe how I felt um, in a way that I think is uh, familiar to all of the athletes on here. Um, I felt like I did after a five hour workout. I felt really tired. Um, I felt, you know, a little achy, um, kind of like when you have a good workout, but you know, you're a little sore, um, especially on the arm. It's important to keep it moving, that will help. Um, but you know, another thing you can do in terms of planning ahead is plan for an easy day. Um, you're gonna know when you're going, when your appointment is. So plan for an easy day, maybe the rest of that day and the day after. Um, and that's what I did. And I essentially just, you know, slept it off. I didn't have to take any, you know, Tylenol or anything, but I could have if, you know, if I was very uncomfortable. But for me, it felt like, you know, I, I wish it was because I had worked out really hard. Um, but that's kind of what it felt like for me. Um, so now I'm going to get to the next question um, about some questions we had related to side effects. So this was a really good question um, from one of the self-advocates. Are, indiv are individuals with Down syndrome at greater risk regarding reaction to the vaccine? Um, the, the true answer here is we're still learning. Why? Because the participants in all of the vaccine trials, we didn't have participants with Down syndrome. And even if we did, it's only been less than a year. So we're not really sure. It's the same reason um, for pregnant patients, why we don't know, we just don't have the now, given everything that we know, um, we don't believe that there would be any higher risk of reaction to the vaccine. And Dr. Harris kind of spoke to you about what she's seen with some of her patients that you have Down syndrome. Um, but just know that, again, with Down syndrome, with pregnancy, they're not contraindications to getting the vaccine. So they don't mean that you should not get the vaccine. Um, and then, you know, thinking about the vaccines requiring second shots, um, two shots, uh, and some people feeling ill after that second shot. So what they're feeling here is likely the side effects, so not COVID infection. We talked about why you know you can't actually get the COVID virus from the vaccine, um, but you know it is confusing because sometimes the symptoms of COVID can overlap with those side effects. So the fevers, um, you know, there's things that can happen in both cases because in both cases, whether you have an actual infection or whether you're getting the vaccine, your immune system's revved up. Um, in the case of the vaccine, that's a good thing because um, we want you to have an immune response so that your body will recognize and fight it later. Um, the best way I can say to kind of tease this out is to watch that time course. So like we said, the symptoms from the vaccine, it's one to three days. So if you you know continue to feel terrible after three days and it's not getting better, you could always consider getting tested um, to kind of help tease out, you know, is this a reaction to the vaccine? Is this an infection? Um, if it is an infection, it's not from the vaccine, but it is possible that maybe you picked it up since getting the shot. Um, I wish we had, you know, like some sort of like light on our forehead or something to show us the second we're infected, but we don't. Um, and so, you know, it's always kind of a guess, but testing can help you sort of tease that out if you're concerned. Um, 
I'm going to talk to you a little bit um, about pregnant or breastfeeding. So the short answer here, um, and we can talk more. I know we're kind of getting short on time, so I'm trying to move us along, but we can talk more about this. Um, as per usual in research, um, when it comes to vaccines, that first round of research typically doesn't include pregnant or breastfeeding women. There's a bunch of reasons as to why that is, but that's kind of the same case here. Um, experts agree that the risks to pregnant women um, are greater than the minimal risks of vaccination. So again, it goes back to, and similar with Down syndrome, that your risk of severe disease from COVID is higher than your risk of sort of a reaction to the vaccine. So knowing that, that's kind of how we would help counsel patients. Um, but patients who are pregnant or breastfeeding can talk to their OB. I will briefly share that I was, I was breastfeeding um, when I got my vaccine, and I'm happy to share about that. The short answer is, didn't really affect the breastfeeding at all, didn't affect the baby. Um, you know, she, she had breast milk um, that was right after I got the vaccine and didn't seem to notice a difference as far as I could tell. Um, I'm gonna let Dr. Harris talk about, you know, we received a lot of questions about, do I still need to wear a mask? So Dr. Harris, the answer is yes, but why? <laughs> well, once you're, once you're fully vaccinated, you're still gonna need to wear a mask in public spaces for now. Um, because even though you got the vaccine, millions of more people um, are remain unprotected. And there's really no way to tell looking at a person who's been vaccinated, who hasn't, who's protected, who isn't. Um, we hope with time, um, when there's a critical number of people that have been vac vaccinated percentage-wise, um, then the need for masks could um, could go away. Um, but as long as there's a lot of community spread of COVID going on, which you can see from our um, current incidence rate in Kentucky, there, there sure is, and there has been for quite a while, um, it'll be important to wear a mask um, to avoid um, inadvertently spreading it between people. Yeah, and again, so for those of you who are picture-oriented, we need this to look a lot more green <laughs> um, yeah. before we can think about masks. Um, this is, you know, as of yesterday, um, so it's something that everyone is continuing to monitor and it's based on sort of the, the community spread at the time. Um, so just know that that's why it's sort of an evolving thing. Um, I know there's also been questions on, you know, well, so then do we have to get down to zero? Um, it, probably not zero. Um, you know, there's very few uh, infectious diseases where the number of cases truly is zero. But it's got to look better than, than that. <laughs> it's a lot of red. We need to at least see a bit more green, um, you know, and discussions will be ongoing as to what is that cutoff, what is that threshold. So another um, topic was about transmission. Um, someone asked, you know, I've seen on the news that even with the vaccine, you can still catch the virus and carry it to others. Is this true? Short answer, we're still learning. Um, but there was some promising news yesterday um, about one of the different vaccines. So not one that we have here in the United States, but a different vaccine that does reduce transmission. Um, so the data from the Moderna and Pfizer that we're currently using here will continue to roll in. Um, we're also reviewing sort of data from other vaccines as it comes. Um, but so it's one of those things that um, we're, we're still learning. Technically as a researcher, wearing my researcher hat, um, I can't answer that yet because we're still learning. Um, the next question about how do vaccinated live-in caregivers protect the unvaccinated adult with Down syndrome? And this is a really good question um, because first of all, being vaccinated is believed to protect your household. I know I just said that we can't say it because of the researcher hat, but wearing the clinician hat, we really do have what I like to call preliminary hope 
um, about the impact of the vaccine mission. Um, and so, you know, a couple quotes that I that I really like here is one of the physicians from Harvard went on record in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very respected uh, medical journal, um, and said, if there is an example of a vaccine in widespread clinical use that has this selective effect where it prevents disease but not infection, that can't be a good one. Um, and, you know, the commentary on this was pretty funny because they said rarely in in, mag in a New England Journal do we see exclamation points. So this physician um, and his expertise, he really meant it. And I think that that's kind of what our clinicians are saying is, while yes, per the research, we can't say anything until we have the data, we do have preliminary hope at this time um, that it is effective on transmission. Um, so being vaccinated in and of itself is a way you can protect somebody unvaccinated in your household. Um, how else can you protect loved ones? So continuing to wear a mask, like Dr. Harris mentioned, um, as well as washing your hands. Um, so those same steps that we've had practice with for about a year now, um, keep it up. Um, it does help. Um, think about it like this in terms of achieving 100% protection from the coronavirus. It's one of those Swiss cheese models where all of the little things that we can do help. Not a single one is 100% effective. It's like when we counsel patients about losing weight. I wish I could tell you that there was one pill um, that would do that. Um, but we know that to get to the goal that we want, there's multiple strategies we have to employ. And so in this case, the vaccine is one of them. Um, but things like wearing masks, washing your hands, um, maintaining those good safety practices are still really important. Um, so in preparation for the vaccine, and this should be green because this is a question um, from one of our self-advocates, what will I need to take with me? Um, so briefly, um, I want to just mention social stories. I will send some resources after this, but there are some really good social stories out there that kind of walk through the process. And if you or a loved one have a bit of anxiety and just kind of want to prepare yourself, kind of walk through the process, social stories are really helpful. Um, but some notes for now is um, you have to get that second dose because that's how you get full protection. And it should be the same vaccine. Typically what happens is when you schedule yourself for the first appointment when it's time, then that second appointment is also scheduled because they're automatically gonna know the time interval and say, you're gonna be due for that second one on this date. Um, and so that's when you would come for the second. At that first appointment, you wanna bring your insurance card um, and a photo ID on that second. You're also gonna bring the vaccination card. Some of you may have seen selfies of people holding up their, um, you know, their official vaccination card you'll get that at the first appointment and you're supposed to bring it with you to the second appointment and they will remind you um, about that. Side note, there's a bunch of articles now about how do not share for all, for all the self-advocates that love selfies. There's now a bunch saying, do not share selfies of yourself with your vaccination card because of the potential for identity theft. And this is why we can't have nice things. Um, but just mentioning that um, in terms of, I know there's excitement, but just remember maybe, maybe you don't wanna share your full card with all your information um, on social media. Um, I'm gonna let Dr. Harris answer this question here. Some have asked about the costs of the COVID vaccination. Um, the COVID vaccination is provided by the government. So it's free um, to everyone. Cost to the patient is zero. You will have to bring your insurance information with you because providers may be able to bill your insurance company for administering the shot. Because um, even though the, sh the physical shot in itself is provided by the government, there's a cost to the facility or provider who are um, providing the vaccinations. 
Yeah, and so we wanted to bring that up just so it's clear. The cost for you is zero. There are some costs associated with administering a vaccine, so that's why you need to bring your insurance card, but it will not be something that you pay for. Your insurance may pay the facility, whether it's the hospital, the clinic, the drive through the public health department clinic, wherever it was, they may end up um, being able to help sub uh, offset some of the costs for the, for the facility. Um, but you as the patient, zero. So um, we're now into kind of the, the, big, the big final push. So bear with us here, because I know we have about 10 minutes, but this, this is kind of what a lot of the questions um, were around. And the short answer to these questions is um, it's changing. So the answers to all of the logistics questions about how we can register for the vaccine, where can I get the vaccine, which sites will have the drive-throughs, how will you know which vaccine you'll receive, um, all of these questions ultimately depend on the supply, um, the vaccine supply coming from the federal government, and it's ever changing. Um, and so the best source of information for you is going to be your local public health department. Um, and I'll kind of explain a little bit more about that as we go. We put some links here, but we're happy to kind of help dig through, you know, a list of frequent um, websites to take a look. Um, for those in Louisville, um, the 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 Louisville COVID-19 Resource Center does have video briefings with Dr. Sarah Moyer, um, and I highly recommend those um, because that is going to be the information straight from the source. Um, and same thing on the um, in Lexington, um, and I can put it up for Frankfurt as well, but essentially your local public health department. So here's the overall big question that I think is causing a lot of frustration. So we know the vaccine is limited. The supply isn't enough currently um, for everyone who wants it to get it. So when the vaccine is limited, who should get it first? And this is a really hard question to answer. Um, and you know, we as individuals are used to thinking about it on an individual level, um, even physicians. So physicians are thinking about that patient in front of us. You want us to be thinking that way. You want us to be concerned with sort of the patient in front of us and that's it. In the same way, you know, in our personal lives, we're concerned with our household and our loved ones, and that's it. Um, and that's appropriate, that's how it should be. But somebody has to think about this from a population perspective. And where that comes in is the public health professionals. Um, ultimately, public health professionals are committed to the fact that everyone who wants the vaccine will have the chance to get it. But we can't go from zero vaccine doses to enough for everyone who wants it just overnight. So then the question becomes, how are we going to do this in phases? Um, this is, you know, just the, the straight language um, from some of the federal websites. But the goal is for everyone to be able to easily get the vaccine as, as soon as large enough quantities of vaccine are available. So again, speaking to those supply issues. So in thinking about the, the phases, I'm going to let Dr. Harris talk, talk through this a little bit. Um, and then I'll kind of add a little bit as well. Sure, yeah, talking about, um, you know, how did the public health departments come up with, um, with phases? Um, they had these kind of over, overarching goals in mind um, to decrease, decrease death and serious disease as much as possible, to pre preserve the functioning of society and reduce the extra burden of COVID-19 on people already facing disparities. So thinking about how do we decrease death and serious disease as much as possible? Look at long-term care facilities that take care of adult and elderly people. Um, those residents and staff account for 39% of deaths nationwide currently. Um, they clearly should be in um, an early phase and they're 1A. Um, 
the older you are, the more likely you are to die from COVID-19 infection. Um, so elderly people um, are in an early phase 1B. It can be a little confusing because the definition of elderly is based on the population of a current of a particular state or county. Um, but in general, um, if you're older, you're at more risk for severe disease. So elderly are in uh, phase 1B. To preserve functioning of society, healthcare personnel were in 1A. Um, so they would be available um, to care for people even with COVID-19 disease. Also first responders, school personnel um, really needed to maintain life um, in general and life as we know it um, during COVID um, and they're in phase 1B. Yeah, and so, you know, in thinking through this, um, just be aware, this example with the elderly, I think that's a good example of how things can get confusing. So you may have seen that in some places they're like 65 and above or 70 and above or 60 and above. The reason for some of that discrepancy is it has to be based on sort of local data. So if you're the public health department and you know that you're gonna get say 100 doses, you know the population in your county that if you said 70 and up, how many people would that be? If you said 65 and up, how many people would that be? Um, so that's what factors into sort of thinking of those cutoffs. And in general, for all of these, um, you know how many first responders, you know how many K through 12 school personnel there are. So that's also functioning, um, factoring into these timelines a bit. Um, the reason sort of K-12 was identified as a priority is, and I think this is not um, foreign to those of you dealing with NTI and sort of how children are coping with NTI, um, while children are not as at high risk for disease from COVID, um, the sort of impact of having to do school remotely with NTI um, is having quite a bit of effect on mental health. Um, for children. So that emerged as sort of an important um, consideration for society-wise. Um, so mental health of children, and then also, um, you know, as a society, we depend upon um, having childcare to go to work. Um, and so for right or wrong, that's another reason that that was sort of prioritized. Um, but so in case you're wondering, it's these big sort of overarching principles that guided the phases. I wanna talk a little bit about phase 1C because I know particularly for our community, that's kind of the, the part that we're most interested in. Um, that is where Down syndrome is and other conditions that I'll go through. Um, but so we're currently in 1B, we're anticipating moving to 1C likely in the summer, again, unless supply changes. We get more vaccine, we'll be able to go to 1C quicker. Um, and again, I mentioned to you about how it's based on data in a particular county, so that local data and really getting into the numbers of how many people would this be. Um, so for example, um, I work closely with Dr. Moyer and you know, we were talking about the other day that for Jefferson County, 60% of the population for Jefferson County is going to fall into 1C. So we're probably gonna have to think through, you know, even again, how are we gonna do this um, in phases? And will the answer be, you know, sort of good for everyone's situation, it's kind of impossible to come up with something um, when you're trying to do something at a population level. The other thing I wanna emphasize is this picture here. A lot of, so for first responders, um, for K-12 personnel, for healthcare workers, our bubbles by nature of our jobs are so much bigger because think about as a physician, how many patients you see. That means that your bubble is not just your bubble that you keep, 
but the bubble of all of your patients. And if you are a teacher, your bubble is not just for you and your household, but it is for every child that you see, um, sort of who are they in contact with? Um, and might someone there in contact with have COVID? And so that also partly factored in here in terms of thinking about um, populations of people who by nature of their jobs um, have a larger bubble. Um, and so that's why, you know, Down syndrome is in 1C, all of the individual health conditions other than age are in 1C. And Dr. Harris walked through, um, it's because of the large percentage of deaths that we saw that age was moved up, was in 1B. Um, so again, thinking about 1C, I just wanna give a shout out um, to, so with Down syndrome, please keep in mind that this was added to the list on 1223. So right before Christmas, um, it was an interesting holiday break uh, because of that, not really a break, um, but people have been working tirelessly on this and will continue to do so. Um, but we've talked about Down syndrome, we've talked about pregnancy and all of this to say that here are the conditions when we say 1C, what we mean. And we'll provide a link and resources to you guys in terms of that. Um, and then there, this is the conditions that might be at increased risk. So what does that mean? So the list before we know, we have good data that say that these folks are high risk of increased risk of severe illness. These are populations that we have done some research, but it's kind of inconclusive. So they might be at high risk, but again, we have more to learn. Um, someone had asked specifically about type one diabetes. So I wanted to highlight that here, but I also wanted you to think about that when you're thinking about your overall risk, there might be some overlap. Potentially you have a medical condition here in the maybe at increased risk, but also in the high risk. And that's why it can get confusing. Um, there's a really good tool, which there's a link to later in here, and I'll make sure that we sort of highlight that. For the state of Kentucky, you can go through and answer the questions provided to you, and it will provide clarity to you as to which phase you'll be in based upon your medical conditions. Um, so we'll make sure that we sort of highlight that. So again, the answer to all these questions is TBD, depending on supply. But breaking news, just as of today, literally an hour before Dr. Harris and I um, thought we were done with the presentation, um, is that Kentucky will be getting another 5% increase to the supply. Um, so total supply here in the week of February 8th, so next week, will be up about 22% compared to where we were um, at the end of January. And that's steadily going to increase. Um, I've been to multiple of the facilities that are ready to give the vaccine that are just waiting on supply. Um, and they are ready to ramp up as soon as um, the vaccine is received. So just know that that's why it kind of takes a bit of delay because it has to come down from the federal level to the state level to the county level. Um, so again, just to emphasize the timeline about these phases, it's not static, it's gonna continue to change. Um, but we are, you know, everyone is working towards the goal of everyone who wants to get the vaccine is going to have the chance to get it and working as fast as we can about that. Um, the parking lot, which um, I'm gonna continue to kind of keep track of these. Um, and again, keeping track of the questions where we're still learning um, and those questions where those logistical questions depend upon supply. Um, I wanna talk about this question here is, how do we get, again, how do we put an end to propaganda and misinformation? And it's looking at your local public health department. You gotta be careful about what news you consume. You gotta be careful about what you share um, and be mindful of sort of your mental health and how you're feeling. Given all the uncertainty here, obviously there's going to be a lot of anxiety, frustration and anger. So are you sharing things or saying things because you wish they were true or because they are true? 
or maybe because of how you're feeling. And I think it's something, you know, we all have to be careful and work on. Um, this is incredibly complex, you know, for me as a sibling to somebody with Down syndrome, but also a physician, but also a public health professional and also a researcher, I'm conflicted a lot. And I really have to sit and think about, okay, what hat are you wearing when you're thinking these things? Um, I will sum this up. Um, I know Dr. Harris also has a so brief story, but remember that your loved ones are watching. Um, so this is a conversation that I've seen play out many times where, you know, one parent will say, oh, well, let's not talk about that because, you know, she doesn't understand. So she being somebody would say Down syndrome or intellectual disability, she doesn't understand. So talking about it just makes her anxious. But then another parent might say, well, maybe she's anxious because she does understand. Um, how could you not be a little bit anxious about all the uncertainty that's going on out there? Um, and so I think that keeping the dialogue going is the most important thing we can do. Um, I bring up the kindness warriors. Um, so for those of you who uh, work closely with Down syndrome Louisville, recognize that you know the feelings of those who are waiting, um, anxiety for because you want that vaccine for yourself and for your loved ones now, it's the exact same as those who are in charge of making the decisions because we want the vaccine for everyone now. And, you know, I'm doing my best to advocate for our community. I'm not in charge um, of, of how things are going, but there are lots of advocates um, in, at the table in those conversations. So I think we can feel good about that. Um, but lastly, to just be kind <laughs> throughout this process, you know, there's no way to account for an each individual situation. There's no way to please everyone. Public health, um, we can talk about it, you know, at some point, but it's been underfunded for, de un for decades. Um, and no one really planned on a pandemic happening other than public health, and so here we are. But what we can do moving forward is to be kind, to volunteer. Um, a lot of the efforts locally are actually being handled by volunteers. So in addition to working their full jobs, they're volunteering to try to help get the vaccine out. Um, and so again, that's why we're here. Dr. Harris and I are here. We wanna share you know, our knowledge, our expertise with you, volunteer our time to try to combat some of that misinformation. But I think keeping the dialogue going is incredibly important. And Dr. Harris, I don't know if you want to share the story um, you had told me a little bit before this. Yeah. Well, we were talking um, about kind of talk, continue to talk amongst your family um, with each other about your own anxieties and don't underestimate um, what somebody might be picking up. Um, you know, I have a 12 year old daughter and my husband and I were really kind of trying to shield her from some of what's going on around the world um, out of fear of giving her anxiety. And the really in the end, the opposite thing, I hate to share the failure, but um, the opposite happened because she still was picking up on what's going around on around the world in the community, even to the point of giving her anxiety and trouble sleeping um, where a week ago she was waking up at night telling me she was seeing a black figure in her doorway that represented all the bad in the world. And this was me thinking I was trying to protect her from the bad in the world. But sometimes I think talking about it can even make it um, better because your imagination can even be worse than what's actually going on. And so on that note, we're happy to keep talking about it. We hope we were able to address um, some of your most pressing questions. Like I said, any questions that were asked, they're not going away. We're happy to do this again. Um, I know we're kind of at time, but I guess one of the things that would be helpful if you guys want to put in chat is, do you want to do this again? Um, that would be sort of the question that we would love to um, get more clarification from you guys. Um, 
And again, thank you to Special Olympics Kentucky for pulling this together. Thank you for Downson and Louisville for supporting it um, and trying to get this out to our to our whole community um, of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, because there is a lot of information out there and it sure can be confusing. So thank you guys. Awesome job. Um, big round of applause for Dr. Freya and Dr. Corey. Um, thanks so much for everybody for joining. This, is, this was wonderful. I mean, it, it's helped me personally and I think I, we're seeing lots of messages come across in the chat box and I know this was, this was a lot bunched into one hour and Priya alluded to on several occasions that we, we will work to have some follow-ups on this. So a couple things to look for. One is uh, when we wrap up today, you will be getting an email from Kelly Ferkwin with the link to this recorded uh, presentation today. So review it again, because I know we, we kind of had to move it at, at a nice pace to keep the timeline in. But uh, I know for one, I, will, I'm, I know I'm gonna go back tonight and review this because this was wonderful information. So again, thank you so much to uh, Corey and, and, and Priya for this. Feel free to share that link. While we had a great audience today, I know there were many who could not for various reasons be on this, but I think you would all agree that this information was extremely valuable. So feel free to share the link. They can do that, right? Um, and, and, and then just be on the lookout. We will be offering some more educational sessions like this uh, in the future. So. Um, we're just doing one last check of the chat box. Again, it's all just good comments. So thank you all very much and have, have a wonderful rest of the day and a, and a great rest of the week. Thank you again. This has been the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production. To learn more about Down Syndrome of Louisville, visit our website, downsyndromeoflouisville.org. If you have questions or ideas, you can email us at kindnesswarriorpod at dsoflou.org. The music for this episode was written and performed by Alex Stotts and Owen Eiler. The Kindness Warrior podcast is produced and edited by Ethan Holstein, produced and hosted by Carly Riggs. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. 